0: Carolyn Orenz is, is a writer who records this, uh, this story. She says, my husband, Mark, is a public high school counselor. A few years ago, a group of 11th graders asked him to coordinate a humanitarian trip. He contacted one of our favorite Christian organizations. They agreed to facilitate an excursion to Mexico to build a playground in an impoverished area. Mark was careful to explain to the students, explain that the students who would be participating were unchurched. Should there be even a whiff of proselytizing, parents and the school board would feel betrayed. Well, there were 24 students and there were four teachers, my kids and I tagged along. Upon arrival, we discovered that the arranged accommodations at a local rotary club had fallen through. Instead, we would be sleeping on the cement floor of a church basement in downtown Juarez, one of the most dangerous cities in Mexico, as my (laughs) missionary friends, the Agnews can well attest to. Mark could already imagine the parent phone calls he'd receive when word trickled home about where we were staying. Weary from a long day of travel, we set up sleeping bags and tried to ignore the exposed wiring, the hole-ridden walls, and the scurry of cockroaches. In the morning, we drove to the site of our project. Jaws dropped and eyes welled up as we observed the abject poverty around us. But we also experienced the sweet rush of doing something worthwhile. At the end of the day, we returned to our cement floor feeling good. And all was well until the nausea hit sometime around 3 a.m. The first wave of students became ill. By morning, there were clusters of miserable people draped on every available garbage can. Mark held his head and imagined a new wave of parent phone calls, but mostly he threw up. (laughs) Around 9 a.m., the two local women who were preparing our food arrived on the scene and surveyed the carnage. Despite the language barrier, their distress and concern was unmistakable. They had followed all the guidelines for cooking for foreigners and we were still sick. Eventually, one of the women approached the only teacher who could speak Spanish and asked for permission to pray for us. Too ill to object, the teacher nodded yes. As soon as the woman began to pray, I knew we were in trouble. I thought, maybe everyone is so ill they won't mind the praying. But my hopes for a low-impact prayer faded quickly as the women became increasingly emotional. She prayed for five minutes, ten, maybe more. Gracias, Padre. Gracias, Jesus. Gracias, Espíritu Santo. She wept over and over. I began a prayer of my own. Please make her stop. I don't want Mark to get fired. I don't want these kids to be put off of religion. And when she was finally done, I took a deep breath and I forced myself to raise my face, dreading the reactions that I knew were inevitable. Things were not as I expected. There was not a dry eye in the room. Students were hushed, visibly moved, whispered one teacher. Several people nodded. And to them, the prayer had not been unwelcome proselytizing, but a heart's cry. Passionate, desperate, and utterly authentic. I was ashamed, of course, and humbled. The Holy Spirit had been moving, and I, one of the few mature believers in the room, had missed it God uses childlike prayers to change things my friends we know this right but do we really do we really know it church calendar quiz for you this morning those of you who are my church history aficionados Anyone know what Sunday this is? This is this is the 7th Sunday following Resurrection Sunday. Yes. Pentecost Sunday. The day on the calendar that the church celebrates the coming of the Holy Spirit upon the followers of Jesus. Now, tell me Why did the Holy Spirit come upon the followers of Jesus? To do what? To bring power. To bring power? I thought the Holy Spirit came upon them so they could live a nice life. So the presence of God's Spirit wasn't the key to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? empowered for witness. It almost sounds like that's what Jesus had in mind. That is such a novel idea. God's people empowered for witness. I think it's so timely that God in his plan had us fall on the text that we are on this morning in Romans chapter 8 on Pentecost Sunday. And I know you're thinking, I planned this. I didn't. I'm not that smart. I'd like to say I did, but wow, it just happened. And today in our text, Romans chapter 8, Paul speaks to a very particular role that the Spirit plays in the lives of those who are followers of Jesus. And so this morning, we're going to add one more truth to all that we've been learning so far in Romans chapter 8 to answer that question, so what? That we've been asking since the Sunday after Easter. Admittedly, a somewhat cynical question that arose in my heart the day after Resurrection Sunday. You remember? Christ is risen. Christ is risen. We said that a lot. We celebrated that a lot. People around the world celebrated the fact that Christ is risen. Resurrection Sunday, whoop-dee-doo, and then came Monday morning. So what? What difference did it make What difference does Christ is risen make in the lives of those who believe that? And what we have learned so far is that because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus, we no longer live, those who put their faith in Christ, no longer live under the deserved condemnation of God. That ought to do something to our insides. Wow! Those who have not been redeemed through Christ, they live under condemnation for rejection of God as their creator and their life giver. We have learned that when you live under condemnation, you are enslaved to the sin nature. It enslaves the hearts and the minds of humanity so that there is no way to please God. You know, there just isn't. The nicest people that we know... If they do not express faith in Jesus, they live under the condemnation of God. doesn't mean they're not nice people. But their niceness doesn't please God. Their state in life doesn't please God. Their political affiliation, their bank account, nor their good looks, none of those things please God. But when a person by faith puts their trust and confidence in Jesus to save them from condemnation... They are set free, we have learned, for the very first time in their lives to live out the purpose for which they were created. And that's an awesome thing because we were created to live in relationship with God. Nod your head, this is familiar. Yes, I remember this. I've heard this. Okay, thank you. Thank you for that moment. Okay? Christ is risen, so what? Well, that's what. His death makes it possible for people who were under a death sentence to suddenly live in relationship with Him, and that is huge. But not only, not only do we live in relationship with Him, but we've learned that He made us His kids. He made us His children. It's not enough for God to save us. Seems like that ought to be. But in His unbelievable love, He adopts those that He saves as His children Paul says he makes us heirs with Jesus. That means we will share the inheritance that Jesus shares as the Lord of glory. I have no idea what that means, but I'm pretty convinced that that's incredible. Pretty amazing. Last week we learned that we have a future that is so glorious that even creation, the animate and inanimate objects in creation Paul says they're longing to see what the children of God are going to look like in their final completed state. It's not done yet. Here we are. But until that happens, we're still living, as we know, in a fallen world. It is full of pain, and it is full of suffering. And, unfortunately, we also learn we're not exempt from that. We are not exempt from that. In fact, because we are the children of God, there is an additional level in which we experience suffering. Persecution from others because they do not understand the life that we live as God's children. Our thinking and actions are motivated by the reality that we are the children of the God of the universe, living for His pleasure, living for His glory, and there will be people who simply do not understand that. Right? Remember this? It makes sense? So far? Okay. Let's stand and read... We're going to uh, read last week's passage as well, and then we're going to add to it the two verses for our text this morning. But let's, uh, let's be reminded of where we were and how that leads us into our verses this morning. Let's read together. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed, Amen. Go ahead and be seated. Such a cool text. I just love this. I think it's, I think it's one of those that, that we can quickly pass by. It's familiar to so many of us. And, and we sort of think, oh, yeah, yeah, the Spirit of God lives in me and, and helps me pray. But we must not miss the significance of what Paul is saying here. He starts off with those words... In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. And we should immediately ask the question, in the same way as what, Paul? In the same way as what? He says, we do not know what we ought to pray, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. Groans, that's the third time In this text that we've heard that word, the creation, Paul says, groans, waiting to be delivered from its bondage to decay. The children of God groan, waiting for the redemption of their bodies, and now Paul tells us that the spirit groans as he helps us to pray. It's a lot of groaning, okay? So I want you to turn to your neighbor, and for just a minute, I want you to ask them, what's the groaning all about? Okay? What is the groaning all about? What's the source of the groaning? Let me tell you again. Listen closely. Creation is groaning as it waits for liberation from decay. The children of God are groaning as they wait for the redemption of their bodies, and the Spirit is groaning as He helps us to pray. What's the theme? What are they groaning about? What's the cause? Okay, what do you think? Do you hear anything profound from your neighbor? What what's the groaning about? What's what's the source of the groaning? What's going on? Anyone? Doug? Okay. Anticipation of renewal. Of course, you're profound neighbor. I understand that. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah, and he describes that, you know. Creation's been doing it, as, as in, you know, the pains of childbirth. Okay. So anticipation of redemption. What else? Jeannie? Jeannie? Okay, 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 good, good, good. All right. Gary? Okay. Mm-hmm. Pray for help, pray for forgiveness. Okay, okay. What are you praying for forgiveness for? You do (laughs) Gary, are you sinful? (laughs) He's going, Hey wait, don't single me out, buddy. (laughs) Yeah, Allie. Interesting. Sin that little Three letter word that has such enormous impact on creation and on humanity and on relationships. Diane, you want to add? Okay. Isn't that awesome? That's exactly what Paul is driving at in this text. And thank you for saying that. I don't want us to miss this. You know, let me just give you a, a little, a little side note. Um, you know, we we've learned that we're not obligated to the sin nature. Very real sense that the spirit within us is is groaning because we are not. Done with sin. We are not obligated to it as Paul has told us previously in the text. But but we still wrestle with the presence of the sin nature as it's in our being. You know, we've been freed from its control. But we still wrestle and unfortunately we still give ourselves sometimes to its control. Just a, a side note for what it's worth. There's some thinking in, in Christian circles that gets expressed sometimes like this. God is holy, and because he is so holy, he cannot look upon sin. And so what that means is that when God sees his redeemed children, he does not see their sin, he sees Jesus. Can I just say for the record, that's nonsense. That is just nonsense. I understand the intent. To be sure, there's a positional truth about our theology that we need to understand and and we stake our lives on. Paul expresses it in 2 Corinthians 5 this way, God made him who had no sin, that him being Jesus, to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Wow! That's awesome. You know. And, and that's what Paul is expressing in the first part of Romans 8 in different words when he says there, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is a marvelous positional truth. It is glorious. But don't think... But that means that God is some kindly, benevolent father who thinks that his children can do no wrong. He knows better. That he somehow is blind to their imperfections and he only sees them with halos over their heads. No, no. Doesn't work that way. What Paul is telling us here in this text is that the Spirit of God who indwells us labors and groans Alongside of the presence of sin that is within us. That's incredible. The holy presence of God in these sinful vessels. And he works to strengthen us and to help us in our weakness that results from that sin nature in us. That is why all of creation is eagerly waiting for the new creation to see the children of God in their redeemed bodies. That's without sin. We don't leave sin until we leave the body. Creation can't wait to see what the children of God look like as they are revealed in their perfection. Sin will be gone, but until then, those who are God's children have His Spirit within them to empower them and to give them victory. In their living as God's children. There's a temptation, I think, to, uh, to link the idea of weakness with our prayer life because of the way Paul words this text. He writes, he writes immediately after he says that this, after we, we struggle with sin, he says that the Spirit helps us with our weakness, and then he immediately says that we do not know what we ought to pray. Now the language structure in this sentence, it doesn't require that we understand it that way. And that's a good thing because that's not the way I want us to understand it. You'll be happy to know that for once I'm not alone in my thinking. There are actually others who feel this way. And so this morning I am not a heretic and that is a good thing. Put your matches away, okay? There are a number of lessons in this text for us this morning. But I want us to to look at two that are just, I think, huge and, and fundamental that we need to take with us. There is certainly a lesson about prayer here, and and we'll look at that. But that's going to be our second lesson. The first one, we take from this text as a reminder of what it is that affects our prayer life more than anything else. We need to hear that word weakness in the context of what Paul has just taught us. Remember the, the, the prior verse that we ended with last week. But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Paul is talking about this, the struggle and the waiting and the hoping and having confidence in God. And remember, if we talked last week, our lesson was about suffering as the children of God. As we've said already, we're, we're not exempt from suffering. Christ Suffered. It was a part of God's plan. And as his, his children, we too will share in the sufferings of Jesus. And that will come in a number of forms. Certainly there's just the stuff of life, the sickness and the diseases and the, the hard stuff. We're just, we're part of life in uh, in a fallen world. and And it's there. And yet, there's also that sense that I already mentioned of the level of, of persecution that can come because we as the children of God live our lives for God's glory and, and we live in such a way that he is exalted in our lives and that's going to cause us to, to live differently in terms of values and, and what, what we invest ourselves in and give ourselves to and people don't necessarily understand that and, and even though we are his kids, we're not perfect yet. And and as we've already noted, the sin nature is still alive and it's kicking inside of us. And it it flares up from time to time. So, So hear this statement very, very clearly. The enemy will use the sin nature to create doubts about our status as the children of God. You need to know that. He will use the sin nature... And the stuff that we surrender ourselves to, especially in terms of our thinking, to create doubts in us about our status as the children of God. There is nothing that the enemy would love more than for God's children begin to wonder if it really is true. God's grace really is grace. If God's love really is all that amazing. In the same way that he assaulted Job we can't expect that our lives are going to be exempt from those kinds of sufferings from time to time. And so, lesson number one is this. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. First of all, by reminding us, informing us, Counseling us, encouraging us, cheerleading us as the children of God. We are the children of God. If you have put your faith in Christ Jesus, you have become God's child. That's where we've been in Romans 8. Those whom God has redeemed, those who no longer are under condemnation, are God's children Paul deals with it as a fact. But let's be honest. We struggle. We struggle when there's ongoing pain, when there's ongoing suffering, when financial deal after financial deal after financial deal just goes in the pot. We struggle. And the sin nature causes us to begin to think things like, how could he let this happen to me? Does God really love me? Don't I deserve better than this? Okay, maybe it's only me that has thought those things. David Shelley is a pastor of Bethel Baptist Church in Greeley, and he says, You know, God speaks, but we are too preoccupied with ourselves to respond. Are we aware that the one giving us sustenance at this very moment has spoken? He has spoken to us through the truth of his word, and he speaks to us through the presence of his spirit, reinforcing the truth of what God has said about us in his word. The source of every good gives life and everything necessary to live it in relationship with him. And he speaks that we might be sustained and refreshed in our knowledge of him. David says the most offensive thing we can do is to refuse to enter the conversation. The spirit prompts in God's children reminders that they are in fact his children. He prompts us to remember that suffering happens. We live in a fallen world. He reminds us that Jesus has made no promises to his followers that they would be exempt from hard stuff. In fact, he he said it to the contrary. If you want to be my follower, what do you do? You deny yourself, you take up your cross, that's a thing that you die on, and you follow me. Foxes have holes, birds have nests, son of man doesn't have any place to lay his head. Are you sure you want to follow me? Those Those are the the teachings of Jesus and they're the expectations that He has that, that those who sign on to follow Him are dying to self. It's a radical message. We don't hear this much. But that's the role of the Spirit in our lives to remind us of the truth because the sin nature rises up and wants us to think other stuff. To think that Maybe that's not true for me. Maybe that's really not what Jesus meant. You know, I am probably living a better life than so-and-so, so so maybe it won't happen. The enemy would have us to be distracted with the sufferings of life so that we forget the blessedness of the relationship to which we have been brought into. And if he's successful in that, then the first thing to go will be our prayer lives. Now, I don't mean that we won't pray. We'll pray. Because we're good Christians. We know we're supposed to pray. It's not that we won't pray. But we won't pray in the intimacy of the father-child relationship that we have been brought into. Because if we don't believe the Father and if we doubt His character, then we are going to keep our distance. And that is the second lesson this morning. Prayer is a conversation between children and their Heavenly Father and that is what the Spirit prompts and encourages in us. Relationship is the point of prayer. It's not rubbing the genie lantern, in hopes that we get our wishes. It's relationship. We've been brought into the family of God as sons and daughters of God so that we might know and enjoy God. What have we said all along in this series? We've got to stop making, following Jesus something that only has to do with my life after this one. It has everything to do with how I live my life now in preparation for that one. And here's the thing, if we really, as as children, we really know the Father, we will pray as only children can pray. And when we pray, it won't be about prayer. How many times have you caught yourself praying? Gee, I wonder if I'm praying the right things. Gee, I, I, I wonder if I'm saying the right things. You know, it's kind of back to that on kind of rubbing the bottle in my philosophy of prayer children in the relationship of safety and love and contentment with their parents they just say it I love that Paul said we call him Abba the Aramaic you know it's it's, it's Papa it's Daddy do I dare get that intimate with the God of the universe well he's the one who said it don't ask me Take it to Him. And our conversations with our Heavenly Father will be characterized, I think, by the guiding points of Jesus' prayer. We've studied that one. Matthew 6, Luke 11. Both records of that prayer begin with what? Do you remember? Father! Jesus! In response to his disciples' request, teach us to pray, Jesus says to them, it's about relationship. It's about a relationship that you have that others do not until they too become his children. Let me offer you just a a point of commentary on, on verse 26 that I think is really important. Paul says, we do not know what we ought to pray pray for but the spirit himself intercedes for us. Now, now some translations use how we should pray. We do not know how we should pray. The word how could suggest that that we don't know kind of the art of praying or or how to to phrase our petitions properly. But that's not the word that is really used there. And and, and I would ask how important is it to use proper phrases when children are speaking with their father. You know, when my kids want to borrow the car, how do they ask me? Oh, benevolent and wonderful and gracious father. (laughs) I would that you would bequeath me the keys to your automobile. Now, we could say that there's a level of respect perhaps there. Probably not. Am I saying that we don't come in respect To the God of the universe? Of course not. But we come with the amazed certainty that we are His children. We are His kids. He's made us His children. He tells us to come and address Him as Father. So even the wording, what we should pray for is really kind of dubious it 's kind of questionable because our English word for has no equivalent in the original text, so it 's sort of process of elimination. the more literal wording is what we should pray. we do not know what we should pray, but the spirit himself intercedes for us and and I would suggest that jesus, as we 've studied before, gives us a pattern in his prayer. And, and in that prayer, interestingly enough, there is only one comment, one request having to do with the stuff of daily life that we need. You remember that line, right? Give us today. The bread that we need for today is the literal rendering of the language. Jesus in Matthew chapter 6 said, Why do you seek after all the stuff the pagans seek after? Your Father knows that you need them. You see where this is going, right? As children of God, we come to him with confidence that he knows us, that he is concerned about us, that he cares about us. Do we know our real needs as God sees them? Do we know the needs of others going deeper? Do we know the will of God in respect to these things? One writer says, in the last analysis, it is that that will determine how our prayers will be answered. Paul is saying, my friends, that the Spirit of God takes the good heart's intention of the child of the Father and translates them into something glorious and honoring to the Father. I think that's what Paul is getting at when he says, he who searches our hearts, that's the Father, knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. The Spirit is prompting in our hearts the right prayers. The prayers that are prayed out of relationship with God as Father. Prayed out of confidence. Prayed out of certainty. Prayed out of just the the assurance that that God is our Father and is at work in our lives to bring glory to Himself through us. we'll We'll hear Paul say next week, and work all things together for good. And so, as... As Paul puts it, God is searching the hearts of his children. What's he looking for? I think he's looking for treasures that please him, that honor him, that bless him. And the Spirit is there in our hearts prompting those prayers that bring honor and exaltation to God. You've heard me say this before, forgive me, but this is the one that always comes to mind. Do you spend more time praying for the safety of your children in life or do you spend time praying for their godliness? Do you spend time praying that their hearts long after Jesus and want to serve Him? I'm guilty. You know, I, I, I want my kids to be safe. I want them to live a nice life. What does that have to do with anything? Particularly if my kids know Jesus. Then my prayer needs to be oh, God, give them hearts to follow after Jesus with great passion. You're their father, you'll take care of keeping them safe. That's not my problem. Do we potentially show a distrust in God's ability to care for and protect and provide when we spend more time praying for those things than the stuff that is really of significance and eternity? Just asking. Okay. All right, I'm going to shut up. Praise team, why don't you come on up. Just (laughs) let me read this story as we close. Opened with a story this morning. want to finish with a story. Francis Chan, some of you know. Uh, his, his writings and his teachings. Tells a story about uh, a couple that he knew. Dave and Lynn Phillips is their name. He says years ago, they were talking together about the callings they felt God was stirring in them. The Spirit. Stirring up those things that are from God and for God and of God. As they discussed what they were most passionate about, They agreed that bringing relief to suffering children and reaching the next generation with the gospel were at the top of the list. Do you think that came from the Holy Spirit? Yeah. The thought of starting a relief agency was considered. But Dave's response was, that would mean I have to talk in front of people. By nature, Dave is a very quiet, behind-the-scenes kind of a guy. But after much prayer... Dave set aside his fears and he and Lynn started the Children's Hunger Fund out of their garage. Six weeks after the Children's Hunger Fund was launched in January of 92, he received a phone call from the director of a cancer treatment center in Honduras asking if there was any way he could obtain a certain drug for seven children who would die without it. Dave wrote down the name of the drug and he told the director that he had no idea how to get this type of drug. And then they prayed over the phone and asked God what he wanted to do. As Dave hung up the phone, before he'd even let go of the receiver, it rang. It was a pharmaceutical company in New Jersey, asking Dave if he would have any use for 48,000 vials of that exact drug. Not only did they offer him $8 million worth of this drug, but they told him that they would airlift it any place in the world. Dave would later learn that the company was one of only two that manufactured this particular drug in the United States. Within 48 hours, Dave had the drug sent to the treatment center in Honduras and to 20 other locations as well. It was then he believed that God was at work validating his calling to this ministry. My friends, how's your prayer life? Do you pay attention to the promptings of the Spirit to go to God's Word to be reminded of who you are? You are children of the living God. That doesn't entitle you to a certificate of exemption to the hardships of life. What it entitles you to is the faithfulness and the greatness and the glory of God lived through you if you'll pay attention to the promptings of the Spirit in your life. And here's a clue. The Spirit of God does not prompt us to take care of ourselves the Spirit of God does not prompt us to look out for ourselves the Spirit of God prompts us to do what the sin nature would have us do take care of ourselves look out for ourselves the Spirit of God moves us in the other direction trust the Father move away from self care move away from looking out for number one trust me walk with me risk for me sacrifice for me live your life as if you really are child